0: wherever you are anyway god bless you and i hope you enjoy the podcast today we conclude our fall 2020 sermon series the politics of jesus a series that was designed to help us navigate this election season to explore the political nature of the gospel to rethink what we thought we knew about jesus and to allow the messiah from nazareth to lead us to a more authentic expression of our faith so that we might faithfully embody the life and teachings of Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. And at the time of this recording, which is Friday evening, November 6th, we still don't know the results of the presidential election as ballots are still being counted. So by the time that you're listening to this message, we may know whether Joe Biden is the new president of the United States or if Donald Trump is, has extended his presidency for another four more years. But regardless of the election outcome, I've prepared a message that speaks to what we do know, and that is this. Number one, Jesus is Lord. And number two, we have some major problems in this country. And those problems, as we can see through this presidential election and through the race, if you've been watching the news and looking at the map they keep showing us in front of us, will ultimately not be resolved through American politics in its current form no matter who the president is and what political party gets the upper hand. So what can we do? What should the church do now? And where might the spirit be leading us to go from here? I'll say more about that and how I believe the church should respond a little bit later, but let's begin by reflecting on what we've covered in this series before we land the plane, so to speak, and bring this series to a close. Here's where we've been. In the first message, church, we have a problem. We looked at how Jesus said that his disciples are to be known by their love. But unfortunately, that isn't the case today. Instead of living in love and trusting in cross power, many Christians are lusting for political power and fighting culture wars. So I call us to remember who we are and to return to the way of Jesus. In the second message, Jesus and the Third Way, we saw how Jesus resisted the temptation to use worldly kingdom power to achieve the ends of the Father. He showed us that the kingdom of God is about power under, not power over. And he called his disciples with divergent political views to follow him and discover a third way to live within the empire. Therefore, I said, we need to pledge allegiance to Christ and trust in his way of changing the world. In the third message, the inaugural address of Jesus, I invited us to see how as an incoming president reveals the things they intend to do when they come into power, Jesus does the same when he makes his royal announcement in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. But unfortunately, as Jesus saw in his hometown, not everyone desires his kingdom because the messianic agenda of Jesus is good news for those wanting a new world, but it's bad news for those who aren't willing to repent and let go of the old one. And then in the fourth message, the patience and empathy of exiles, I shared how the early church did not see themselves as the moral guardians of society or try to impose their will on the world. They had no political power. They had no vote. Yet they turned the Roman world and the empire upside down. And they did it by faithfully living out the messianic agenda of Jesus as citizens of the kingdom. They weren't in a hurry or in a panic. Instead, they lived as empathetic exiles and trusted God to work in his time. In week five, in a message entitled, Might from the Margins, guest speaker Dennis Edwards told us that if we want to see Jesus today, we don't look to the powerful, we look to the powerless. The first Christians were among the powerless, so who are the powerless today? Well, look around you, Dennis said. Who are the oppressed, forgotten, and those who've been exploited by the imperial system? Dennis said that it's time to listen and learn from those in the margins because they are the best teachers of what it means to be followers of Christ in the American empire. And then last week, in the sixth message of our series, Jesus, You, and the Voting Booth, I said that it's time for Christians in America to acknowledge that we're living in a modern-day empire. And I gave some reasons why the U.S. is more like Babylon or Rome than ancient Israel and how the U.S. is not a Christian nation. Instead, there is only one holy nation, the church. And as the church, as aliens and exiles on the earth, our civic conduct, our political life should reflect the gospel of Jesus, his messianic agenda, and the beauty of his coming kingdom. Which brings us to the final installment in the series, a message I've entitled, Long Live King Jesus. When we say Jesus is King, what do we mean? Think about this. We need to give this some serious thought because American society has been so heavily influenced by Enlightenment thinking that we fail to recognize how it tends to kick God upstairs and out of sight, out of the public square, And it privatizes matters of faith in order to keep religion separate from secular society, to keep Jesus in his place, that is, in church services on Sunday, in our private lives, and and, and out of the real world. And there are probably some of you who are thinking, yeah, like how we've uh, kicked God out of the public schools and how we can't pray before football games. No, that's not what I have in mind. That's not what I'm talking about. And and that shouldn't be what concerns Christians living in a pagan, pluralistic nation within an American empire. Instead, I'm referring uh, to, to how we as followers of Christ have failed to understand and embrace the politically subversive nature of the gospel for ourselves. For example, many evangelicals have been far more concerned about the country keeping a veneer of Christianity but aren't troubled by how we don't really believe or apply the gospel of Christ to our own lives and living. And we seem to be oblivious to the fact that others think that we are completely hypocritical. We don't see how we've made Jesus subservient to our American identity and worldview. You see, most of us have been born into this way of compartmentalizing our lives so that we don't see how this demonic assault on our faith has covertly undermined our Christian faith and made it impossible to experience the full impact of Christianity as a radical countercultural movement. It causes us not to see, not to see how truly revolutionary our faith is. And so the words we use about Jesus and our religion are stripped of their power and the subversive impact of our language is lost. It is just never felt by us or others because it doesn't really mean anything at the end of the day. So when we say Jesus is king, if we're honest, some folks are probably thinking he's king of my life in some personal Lord and Savior sort of way, which I think can be a form of American individualism where Jesus is fortified within the walls of our own heart. He's mine, right? And and what I believe and how I live is none of your business. Very American. Uh, Essentially, it says I I can believe in any version of Jesus I want. And so you don't even uh, see that the real Jesus isn't king of your life. You are. And the American Jesus is just there to cheer you on. Or when we say Jesus is King, we might also mean in some future sense. We think of it that way, when, when the world comes to an end, you know, uh, later on, when Christ returns, uh, that's, that's when He'll be King. But, folks, the early church didn't think that way. That's not how they understood the gospel of Christ, rather they believed that God had really done something through Jesus that had real world impact. That through Jesus, God was becoming king, and that changed everything for them. They then conformed their lives and their thinking to this cosmic king, Jesus. Consider how this is presented in the New Testament. We can look just through the Gospels. We can begin there and see how the angels heralded his royal birth. We see how Jesus was anointed by God in his baptism we see how he defined, Jesus defined his kingship in his temptations, which we've discussed in this series. He gave an inaugural address in Nazareth, all of this very political. He gave us the constitution of the kingdom, and he embodied his messianic agenda in his ministry. Jesus was hailed as king. Uh, Think of Palm Sunday. He's coming into the city of Jerusalem. They're welcoming him as royalty. He was given a coronation. And John 19, when the Roman soldiers put a crown of thorns on his head. They put a, a robe, a scarlet robe around him, and they beat him with a stick and make it his scepter. This is Jesus' coronation to the gospel writers. And then Jesus defeated his enemies, as he, every king would need to do. And he did it by conquering the grave and, and through his resurrection. And where Paul said in Colossians 2.15, he triumphed over his enemies through the cross. And then he ascended... To the throne in Acts chapter 1 verses 10 through 11. So look at this. We often miss this. Jesus' crucifixion was his coronation. His resurrection was God's approval. And his ascension is evidence that he is reigning and ruling now, not later, now. But how, you might ask? You know, we might think it doesn't look like Christ is Lord. I look out my window and I see a lot of crazy stuff dark, evil things, but Jesus is Lord? Yes. Remember that Christ's first coming is about bringing the kingdom in the middle of the present evil age. These two ages, the present evil age and the age to come, they overlap. It's God's bright future breaking into the darkness of this world. And so, like any war zone, we see small battles won here and there. We see glimpses of God's kingdom invading earth. We see slow advances, and sometimes we see major breakthroughs as the struggle continues. Wherever we see expressions of love, for example... And of justice and of mercy and freedom for the captives. Wherever we see forgiveness, repentance, reconciliation, and people denying their flesh to take up their cross, wherever we see baptisms, brokenness, and breakthroughs, we are seeing the lordship of Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about it, Jesus is Lord. He is reigning, and he is ruling, hallelujah, and he commissions us to join this spiritual war effort. That's how the early church saw it, and that's what they were calling the world to see as well. It's what Paul had in mind when he said, Jesus Christ is Lord. He says this multiple times in his epistles, like he did with the Philippians. Let's go back to where we began this series in Philippians chapter 2. Paul wrote this, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now watch this. Paul is about to talk about the Lordship of Jesus, and he connects it to real life. He connects it to our relationships and how we live right? Because it has meaning for that, has implications. Verse 6, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, rather he made himself nothing. This is the kind of Lord we have. This is Jesus' Lordship. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being made and found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is how How low God was willing to go to show us how much he loves us, wants to save us, and redeem us. And then verse 9, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now Paul would have meant two things by this early creedal confession. From what we can tell, this is the earliest uh, Christian creed. This confession, Jesus Christ is Lord. And here, here it is. What, this is what Paul would have had in mind. Number one, he would have had in mind that Jesus the Messiah is Yahweh. So when he said Jesus Christ is Lord, he means that Jesus the Messiah is Yahweh in the flesh. That is that Jesus is the incarnation of God. This would have been radical to all Jewish thinkers of the day. Paul is saying that the Lord of the Hebrew Scriptures and and, and Jesus of Nazareth are the same. And then number two, he would have had this in mind, since Jesus Christ is Lord, this means that Caesar is not. As I've said before, the Roman Empire required the confession, Caesar is a Lord of their citizens. But Paul is saying, no, you can't say that because Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. No other person on the planet is worthy of your worship or allegiance but Christ. In other words, there is no God and country. You've heard that phrase, God and country. There is no God and country, Paul would say. It's God plus nothing. It's just God. And this God has been fully revealed in Jesus, the one who created and sustains the world with his mighty right hand, the one who God the Father exalted to the throne and is worthy to be praised. You know, I've said this whole theocracy project was a failure, and it was. But do you know why? Because it only works when God is king of his people. And that is why Christ came to us the way that he did. And that is why we bow our knee and confess his lordship. He ascended that he might reign and rule from God's throne in heaven. Or as Brian Zahn put it, he put it this way. The ascension is the father elevating Jesus Christ to the oval office of the universe. And he is not Lord elect. Brothers and sisters, that means this. We do not make Jesus Lord. We didn't vote him in. And nobody is going to vote him out. He is Lord because the Father has said so. And his lordship means, like a master chess player, he will forever be moves ahead of his enemies. No matter how many towers of Babel we build... No matter how many times we raise arms against his will in the world, no matter how many mock his law and seek to glorify evil, listen to me, the moral arc of his universe, though it may be long, bends toward justice. And if you're not hearing what I'm saying, let me be clear. The corporate capitalists and the greedy oligarchs of the world will not get the last word. The powerful and privileged elite who tap into our fears to gain our trust. Who con us and woo us away from Jesus. Those who exploit the poor and the weak. They will not get away with their crimes against heaven and earth. Listen church. Those who glorify war, violence, and sexual licentiousness and use their freedom as a cover up for evil will not. Enter the kingdom of God. Folks, it is only a matter of time before the empire falls. For her sins have piled up to the doors of heaven, to the gates of heaven, and her refusal to repent ensures her eventual demise. So as John the Revelator records as a plea from heaven, he says, come out of her, my people, or you will be destroyed with her. And how do we do that? How do we come out of empire? How can we be saved from the wrath to come, as Paul would talk about in Romans 1? Well, listen to what he says in Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10. He says this, a passage that many of us are familiar with. He said, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved." Look at that. There it is. Paul uses this phrase, Jesus is Lord. Now unfortunately, unfortunately, church, uh, we have heard this verse to promote this sort of Christian escapist idea that this is about, Paul is talking about uh, accepting Jesus in our our hearts so that when we die, we can go to heaven. This is not what Paul is talking about. Instead, Paul is saying that if we confess that Jesus is Lord, our life ought to show it. It is those who who confess Jesus is Lord who are willing at the same time to follow the teachings of Jesus and to live subversive lives in the world. They are the ones who will be saved. Listen to how this familiar passage reads in the voice translation. It reads this, So if you believe deep in your heart that God raised Jesus from the pit of death, and if you voice your allegiance by confessing the truth that Jesus is Lord, then you will be saved. Belief begins in the heart and leads to a life that's right with God. Confession departs from our lips and brings eternal salvation. In other words, Christianity is a way of life. It's not about giving mental assent to doctrines or just believing stuff that is totally disconnected to the way that you live, the way you talk, the way you treat people, the way you post on social media, and the way you work for change in the world. Listen, if our lives don't look like Christ or at least reveal that we're trying and that we care to follow Jesus, then we should stop calling him Lord. He is either Lord of your thoughts. Listen to me. He's either Lord of your thoughts and your mouth or he is not. He is either Lord of all or he's no Lord at all, you see. He's either Lord of your politics and your pocketbook or he's not. He's either Lord of your phone, of your computer, and your tablet or he's not. It's as simple as that. And Folks, America waits to see a church that has made Jesus Lord of everything that's when we gain street cred. That's when we will have something to offer the world. You see, the kingdom comes when we allow the Spirit to use us to be what only the church can be for the world. We're called to be salt, light, to love God and neighbor, to strive for justice and be purveyors of mercy and grace, to forgive, to be a shining city on a hill and agent's of new creation. We're called to be bridge builders, peacemakers, and ministers of reconciliation. So think about this. Who else can or will do that? Who else is going to embrace and embody the messianic agenda if it isn't us? That is why I say that we must untangle ourselves from partisan politics and idolatrous empire from us versus them thinking, and from trust in worldly kingdom power to solve all of our problems. The time has come for the church in America to repent of civic religion, to stop fusing our faith with a political ideology, whether it's from the left or from the right, to resist the principalities and powers who undermine our calling and rob us of our witness and unique role in the world. We are his hands and his feet. And church, it is time to wash them clean of our ignorance, to wash them clean of our denial and of our complicity with America's sins so that we can be the body of Christ in a new century. That's what Teresa of Avila had in mind when she penned these words. She said, Christ has no body now but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours, Yours are the eyes through which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes. You are his body. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. O church. We need a kingdom imagination that models and casts a vision for what it looks like to live out the politics of Jesus as the early church did. And a desire for the unity and the solidarity of Christ's table that is greater than our carnal desire to win. Greater than our desire to grab a hold of the horns of power and to fight with the weapons of this world. For only a fresh vision of a Christianity that looks like Christ can heal the divisions in our churches and in our country. And I believe if we'll unite in our love for Christ and his kingdom, God will use us. Just remember these words from Jesus as he prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17, verses 20 through 23. Jesus said, My prayer is not for them, that is his 12 disciples alone. He said, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that would be us, have loved me." Uh, To my knowledge, the only other time that the Gospel of John records Jesus saying something like this, when he says, by this the world will know, is a few chapters earlier in John 13, 34, and 35, when he gave his disciples a new commandment to love one another, which we began our series with. So hear what Jesus is saying. If we do not love each other with the love of Christ, if we're not united in that loyalty and love for King Jesus, then the flock will scatter and the world will never be able to believe, nor will people see the power of the gospel put on display through the local church. But if we will choose to love like Christ, if we will seek the unity that he longs for among his people, then we can shine brightly in the darkness. You know, as I've reflected on this election over the past few days, I've concluded that this us versus them, this red blue state politics and allegiance to partisan ideologies are a threat to democracy, and folks, democracy is fragile. It is fueling and facilitating our societal divides. I'm convinced that this path will not lead to change. It will not lead to civility. It will not lead to common ground or the common good. Yes, I believe changes to the political system need to happen to address our many problems, but no form of government or politics will help us to heal and emerge from our deep division. And I submit to you that followers of Jesus should be more concerned about this division and this polarization than their candidate winning. Pressing harder and harder to win and to gain power is making it worse. Now that isn't to say that voting and politicians don't have real consequences, they do. I've made this clear by now and so you should believe me when I say that. But it is to draw our attention to what must be addressed if we want to preserve the very best about America and most importantly, most importantly to follow Christ and be faithful to His messianic agenda in the world. Yes, we should be civically engaged and care for the least of these. We don't seek unity while ignoring injustice and refusing to lift a finger. But hear me, the church must never turn away from Christ's calling to change the world by first making disciples. We must disciple people into Jesus. And sometimes to do that, we got to get America and, and the empire out of them first. We must disciple people into Jesus, into God's co-suffering love revealed on the cross. We must lead others to embrace transformative communal practices and liturgies of the church that are greater than the liturgies of empire, which are all around us, shaping us and forming us 24-7. We must make disciples who know how to patiently listen and empathize, who are equipped to be peacemakers. This is what Jesus wants us to do. But we can't go out trying to change the world if we're not being changed ourselves. And the good news is that if we will do that, if we'll get serious about our own discipleship, well, Jesus has put it into the DNA of the church to be change agents. As Stanley Hirewass has said, the church doesn't have a social strategy. The church is a social strategy. In other words, we are the divinely appointed vehicle that God sends out to to turn the world upside down. And that doesn't preclude politics. As I've said before, if we want to engage with the polis, if you feel called to work in government, insofar as you can faithfully obey the teachings of Jesus, try to do some good. Bad policies and laws hurt people. That's for sure. It even angers God. But none of us should be deceived by the allure of worldly kingdom politics. The allure is that politics is the best way or even the only way to make a difference in the world. And in that that way, it has become a religion for people in America. Dear saints, this simply is not true. As most church growth and spirit led movements happen in places throughout history where Christianity had little to no political power. So if we're gonna ever fully emerge From Constantine's grip and long hold on the church, we need a fresh vision and disciples who will faithfully follow Jesus in American empire. We need the entrepreneurs and the innovators, the poets and the prophets, the carpenters and the custodians, the executive and the the educator. We need the doctors and the nurses, the counselors and the caretakers, the artists and the attorneys, coaches and consultants, musicians and entertainers. We need you all. We need you and your gifts to help us chart a third way, to embody the teachings of Jesus, to communicate God's eternal purpose for the church. That is that people of every tribe, tongue, color of skin, every nation would bow down and worship as one family, living out the kingdom of God on the earth. But You see, for that to happen, we must desire God's kingdom far more than our own. We must agree that there is a better way. I like how Christina Cleveland put it in her book, Disunity in Christ Uncovering the Hidden Forces That Keep Us Apart. She writes, The body of Christ is vast, diverse, talented, and brimming with resources. I wonder how many real world issues we could tackle if we weren't so busy bickering about the correct way to define a doctrine or which political party is better equipped to solve the crises in our country and beyond. What if we decided that we were going to use our numbers, our expertise, and our potential unity to solve real problems? I love that. What if? You see, the what if calls us to imagine what God can do. As Paul told the church in Ephesus, God can do infinitely more than we could ever ask or dream. And I say if we're going to be a part of a new reformation, folks, we are do one. If we're going to join the Spirit in a non-violent, Jesus-loving resistance movement in America, then we must rediscover what it means to call Jesus Lord together, to live as he loved, to, to live out his politics, and to be united with other disciples who, who agree that Jesus is king and that we should take his teaching seriously. And disciples who see that the kingdom is coming and it always looks like Jesus. Amen. Friends, I, we, we've come to the end here. And I want to say that I hope that this series has helped you during this challenging time. I hope that you've been challenged, encouraged, convicted by the Spirit. I hope that you've been inspired and that maybe you've received some new insights into Christ, and maybe even you've decided to follow the real Jesus for the first time. If that's the case, I'd love to hear from you. And know this more than anything else, it's our greatest desire at Grantham Church. And I know that all your pastors feel this way that you would know the love the forgiveness, the mercy, the grace, and the beauty and the hope that is found in Jesus, because salvation is found in no other, which is why we declare together, and I hope that you would say it with me, long live King Jesus. Finally, I'd like to close out this series with this prayer and blessing The Apostle Paul spoke over the church in Ephesus, which I referred to moments ago. Receive this with open hands and with open hearts. Paul wrote, and I pray, that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, his church. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen, church. And may God help us in the days ahead as we embody the politics of Jesus and continue following Christ in the American empire.